0: It is july 1st happy july 2018 we are in first corinthians chapter 9 we're going to pick it up at verse uh 24 and work through the end of the chapter and um and go from there if you haven't been with us before we sing the word of god set to music we have a prayer sing the word and sit in silence and then we get to our verse by verse study uh, just to let you know uh, we are going to continue on in milk through 2 Corinthians, then through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And that is going to wrap up our, our milk teachings, because uh, we're going to continue on in meat in First and Second Thessalonians, Timothy, Timothy, Titus, uh, Philemon, and that will wrap up the meat. After we've done those books, both in milk and meat, we'll, we'll have covered the entire New Testament, and then we'll start looking at Old Testament books to cover. All right, so uh, let's pray. Lord, we love your word, old and new, and grateful for uh, the revelations that you've given to people to share with us in writing. We pray that we'll be able to interpret by the Spirit the uh, import of those messages to us in our lives today, and that we can see the contextual uh, place they have back in that day. We're grateful for the people who are here in church studio, have taken the time to come out on this beautiful Sunday here in salt lake grateful for the people who are at home and tuning in and people who watch in the archives that we can be some sort of assistance in our walk in the faith and then we just pray that your truths will be shared and known and that uh the things that are not will be forgotten that's our hope because we seek you in spirit and truth so be with us now as we consider your words set to music in jesus name amen mm Okay, Paul finished explaining the way he engaged with the world around him last week, which was wonderfully refreshing. And uh, we ended with verse 23 in 1 Corinthians 9, where he wrote, And this, or these things I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. That's the passage we left off with. And this line sets us up for what Paul says beginning at verse 24 through the rest of the chapter. So let's pick it up at verse 24 and he says now know you not that they which run in a race run all but one receives the prize so one that you may so run that you may obtain and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown but we an incorruptible I, therefore, so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air. But I keep my body and bring it, I, I keep under my body, he says, and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. A lot of King James verbiage there. We'll get through it. Go back to verse 24. Paul builds on what he has said thus far, and he asks, Do you know, know you not, that they which run in a race run all? But one receives the prize, so run that you can obtain. He's been talking about the principle of self-denial in the passages beforehand, and uh, self-denial as a means to benefit others. He said, to the Greeks, I become as a Greek. To the Jews, I become as a Jew. To the weak, I become as the weak, so that I might gain all. He's been talking about denying his own will and ways as a means to reach others. And he has had the right to live off the proceeds of what the church was giving. This is what the context of chapter 9 is. But he's refused on the principle of self-denial. And I'm not going to do it so that I can preach a better gospel. So not a better gospel, but the gospel in a better way. And he has required self-discipline. And now he mashes, if I can use that word, it's really, I'm not using it the right way that we use it now, but he mashes the idea of a physical athletic race to that of the disciplined Christian life. So he says at verse 24, do you not know that they which run in a race run all, but one receives a prize? Everyone's running, but there's only one prize. And he says, so run to his reader that you may obtain. Uh, there are several passages in uh, the scripture, most of them from Paul, I think all of them from Paul, that talk about running a race. He, uses, he uh, taps into this allusion several times. Uh, in Philippians 2.16, Galatians 2.2, Galatians 5.7, Galatians 3.14, 2 Timothy 4.7. These are all different places where Paul taps into the idea of a physical athletic race of some sort and likens it to the Christian life. And in the remainder of chapter 9, he references the well-known games of what we would call the Olympics. But they're not just all Olympics at that time. Some of these games in Greece were actually uh, practiced in Corinth, which is where he's writing this. So throughout this chapter, his objective has been to show that by declining to receive support from the church for preaching, he could better advance the message of the good news by removing that obstacle that questions his sincerity in doing it. And this idea of self-denial, which he's just talked about last week, Uh, is intrinsic to a successful athletic career or a successful focus on physical improvement. Uh, And that is great athletes or people who are physically uh, in shape do not allow themselves to indulge themselves constantly. There's self-denial in the athlete's life. So they don't have the luxury of couch laziness every day, or uh, to stay out late, or to eat whatever they want, or get totally blasted every night. If you're focused on athletic supremacy or physical supremacy, you have to discipline yourself. And so that's why in all these places, Paul taps into that analogy. And, but he's not, he's not promoting uh, physical well-being. He's not promoting the abstinence of meats and drinks and things like that. He is, all he's doing is making a comparison to what athletes do to what Christians should be doing. And, he, and that is, that's the beauty of what he's, he's doing. So, athletes are disciplined, and discipline requires a denial of the self in order to reach a certain place that you want to be. Uh, a better word is privations. Uh, And from that we get deprivation, which is the same thing really, restraint, uh, austerity, uh, discipline, all the same thing. So here he points out that uh, the same disciplines, the same austerity is required in a Christian uh, that are implemented by athletes. And he seems to be referring to these games now, in his comparison, he speaks of racers, verse 24, and wrestlers and perhaps boxers in verse 25. The games to which he is uh, uh, appealing to were, I mean, celebrated with enormous celebration, with pomp and circumstance. And just, it was the, the religion of the pagan world. The, the Greeks loved the, uh, the games that were par- uh, practicing. in. And um, every fourth year on the Isthmus of the, between the Peloponnesus and what is called the Mainland, we had games that were participated there in Corinth. And as an FYI, there were four uh, types of games in Greece. Um, the Pythian, also known as the Delphic games. The Isthmian, Isthmian can't say it well, that was Corinth and then the uh, Nemean games, and then of course, the ones we still know, the Olympic games. So we had four games going on in Greece at different times. So it wasn't that they concurrently happened. They happened at different times, uh, some every fourth year, some every fifth year, some every third year. So there was always a game going on almost in Greece. And this is where athletes got together and competed, of course. And Grecians and other people came from all over to, to watch them. The Isthmian games, or I'm going to call them the Corinthians game because Isthmians is tough to say, uh, were celebrated on that narrow bit of land that connected what's called the Peloponnesus to the mainland, that little isthmus. And so, and um, they were to the north of the city. So when we look at a map, And we have that little connection here where boats would come in and they would uh, do commerce right in that little place, C.C. North of it was where these games took place. And it's probably these games that he's speaking about because he's writing a letter to uh, to Corinth. But he could have been talking about all the others. I'm sure he was familiar with them. And uh, the nature of the games aren't lost even on us because we still participate the uh, Olympics every fourth year, which, which came directly from these games. So the Nemean games were played at a town called Argolis, and uh, they were in honor of this dude named archimarus who died in the battle with the serpent, and he was brought back to life, you know, in the myth, mythology, by Hercules. So you're gonna see tied to these games, Hercules, in a lot of ways. And we automatically know then that there's a tie in these games to physicality, to the flesh, to the things of the flesh. And and that is where uh, Paul taps into them. So due to the connection to Hercules, we see that strength and endurance, etc. is required, and which the Greeks were all about. This metaphysical, spiritual stuff, nah, it's not important. We are going to celebrate physicality you know. The victor of the games was first given an olive crown, and then it would be replaced by the respective crown of the games that they were playing in, and uh, these games were held every third, as I said, in some reports, every fourth and every fifth year. The Pythian games were held every four years at Delphi, at the Mount of Mount Parsonis, uh, and uh, they were celebrated as the Delphic oracles. At the base of the Delphic Oracle. So, tapped into all the games is Greek mythology. All right? The Olympic Games were held every fourth year in Olympia and a town of Elis and on the bank of the Alphys River in the western part of the Peloponnesus. So, there we have the origin of the Olympics that we celebrate now. And according to my sources, the Olympic Games celebrated there in uh, Elis were the instituted by Hercules, again, and he planted a grove called Altus, which was dedicated to Jupiter. So our Olympic games today have tied into them Greek mythology all the way to their origin. And that Greek myth- uh, mythology runs through uh, the thought behind why the games are celebrated. Today, we don't ever see much about it, except at the introduction of the games uh, and they give you a little history of where it came from. People attended the games from all over. And uh, so they would actually, it was so popular that the, every four years, the word to describe every four years was Olympiad. It was synonymous with the Olympics. And so this, if you say, I want to uh, visit you every four years, you'd say, I want to visit you every Olympiad. Not referring to the games, but referring to the four year period of time. Uh, And the games consisted at that time of leaping, running, throwing the quat or the discus, uh, boxing, wrestling, and sometimes chariot and horse races. It's interesting, but just as gospel knowledge, listen to this, just as gospel knowledge is required to get, it requires study to get gospel knowledge. Gospel knowledge does not come by sitting out, in the desert with legs crossed and hands like this, hoping for revelation. It comes by study. People don't get that. It, it only comes in the same way we get academic knowledge. Now, you can grow in your depth of understanding through, the, through prayer, etc., but it's going to be depth of understanding of what you've studied. So the idea of revelation is always going to be tied to the things that you have studied and learned. So, just as that is gained by, just our knowledge of the gospel is gained by study, and then we get our insights to it, Um, walking a victorious Christian walk is accomplished in the same way that winning an athletic competition is won. And that is, it requires discipline, just like an athlete, usually our winning athletes have disciplined themselves in diet and have disciplined themselves in exercise and all that stuff, right? Well, the same thing Paul is telling us, that's what happens in the Christian life. You discipline yourself to walk the Christian life through self-denial, and you run the race. So that's why he says, Know you not that they which run in a race all run, but one receives the prize, and then he adds, So run! That you may obtain, run the Christian race. So, in the uh, Greek games, the highest honor was to those who were f- fleet, fleet of foot, light of foot, fast runners. And they were considered to have extraordinary virtue. Uh, and so they took great pains to become faster runners. Uh, to the extent that it said that there came a belief that if you removed and burned your spleen, you would be a faster runner. So they would do that because they did anything possible to make themselves quicker. Homer, and you know, because this is Greek and Homer's Greek, he wrote, quote, swiftness is the most excellent endowments with which a man can be blessed, end quote. And that's Homer well before. Christ's day and age. So in fact, the ability to run so fast was prized um, that it's thought that it was connected to warfare. Because you're able to run fast in Olympic Games, you are going to be excellent in warfare. And so the city that had the fastest runner was linked to be the city that would be p- perhaps better in warfare. If you had a city that's winning all the foot races, you're going to be fearful of that city when it comes to warfare. So that was one of the reasons they think that flight of foot was important that way. And, of course, the, the, the competitors trained in, all, uh, incessantly to get better. They did what was necessary to increase. So Paul's point is that we, too, as believers, we are running a race. Now, strip from your mind the athletic, direct athletic comparisons to our, we have to be fast, we need to run, and all that stuff. All we're talking about is entering into an engagement where you train for improvement in the engagement. Don't let it become a literal thing where you take it and make it, assign it to all four, which is easy to do. But that's not what he's saying in my estimation. And here he says in the Olympic Games, though all run, only one receives the prize. Um, And I'll tell you, in the Olympic Games, they received a wreath of olive. It's like you go out to the olive thing and make your own wreath. But this was big. And the Delphi Games was a wreath of apple. Pine was the Ithmian reward, a wreath of pine. And parsley was the uh, Nemean reward if you won one of your events. So these prizes were conferred upon the champion on the last day of the games. Again, something Paul is alluding to. And then there was great pomp and, and congratulations uh, a Grecian historian talks about the victor of these games, and he says, quote, Everyone thronged to see and congratulate the victor. The relations, friends, and countrymen, shedding tears of tenderness and joy, lifted them up on the shoulders to show them to the crowd, and held them up to the applauses of the whole assembly, who strewed handfuls of flowers over them. Nay, at their return home, they rode in on a triumphal chariot, the walls of the city were actually broken down to give them entrance into the city. And in the many cities, a subsistence was given them out of the public treasury as as they were exempted from taxes. Uh, Cicero says that a victory at the Olympic Games was not less honorable than triumph at Rome. So uh, we are talking about This is the reason Paul is likening now the Christian walk, the Christian life, to the Olympic or the Isthmian or the Nemean games, right? Of course, Paul, he has probably, certainly witnessed these games and through his travels. And so he adds, know you not that they that run in a race, they all run, but one receives a prize So run that you may obtain. Uh, When he says that they all run, but one receives the prize. I think that's something that he's just using as an example. I don't think he's saying that all Christians walk the Christian walk, but only one receives the prize. I think that would be uh, not wise to see it that way. That's not his point, in my opinion. Uh, He's just saying that it's through the walk that the reward is expected. Now, That is often forgotten in the Christianity of today, the reward. It is often ignored. That's why we just sang, uh, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's the connection to it. So what is the prize he alludes to in the Christian realm? This is a a question that divides uh, denominations throughout the world and has for 2,000 years. What is the prize that Paul is saying the Christian is running for in their life? Now, you ask yourself that question. What do you think the prize is in your mind and heart? Silently ask. Our answer debated by theologians for 2,000 years has to be approached within the context of Scripture. We can't just say, I think it means this, but not have a basis. That's my job, is to look at what I think the basis is and then provide it to you, and then you consider it and reject it and, and, and look at someone else's basis. For example, here in Utah, we are surrounded by two different views of what the prize is for running the Christian race, walking the Christian walk, being a Christian on this earth. We're surrounded by two polarized views. The one view says your prize is salvation. Your prize is that you will live with God after this life for walking the Christian walk throughout your life here. And that we run the race to obtain salvation. And the other is the prize uh, is rewards. That's this hand. That we are walking the Christian walk and we're running the Christian race, trained as a Christian athlete, so to speak, in the ways of the Spirit, so that after this life we will receive rewards. So salvation or rewards these are the two main views that are bantered about this illustration that Paul gives when it comes to the crown that the Christian will receive. So I want to reread the four passages quickly. Just listen to them. They actually say, they set our parameters in my understanding. Here we go. Know you not that they, the Olympiads, which run in a race, all run, but one receives the prize, So run that you, Christians, may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery, I'll add in whether the striving is for athletics or for a heavenly something, those who strive for the mastery, athletes or Christians, are temperate, typically with regard to restraint of lifestyle and diet or imbibing or restraint from the world or the flesh. They're temperate in these things. In all things, he says, they are temperate. Those who are involved are temperate. Now they do it, the athletes, now they do it, the athletes, to obtain a corruptible crown. Like the olive branch or the, the other things, right? Like wreaths. But we do it to obtain an incorruptible crown. So where the religions say we are running to obtain salvation, Catholics, generally, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, people who say you must do this, there even some Baptists, you must do this, 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 and you have to do it your whole life and do it, do it, do it in order to enter into heaven are seeing this analogy that way. And others might read the words, uh, we might say they're saying you run to obtain salvation or exaltation, whichever one you want. Um, There are others who say that we have obtained salvation and we are running to receive the crown for the race, the crown for having endured temptation, the crown for having gone through this life and this difficulty faithful, and at the end of the race, at the end of our lives, Christ says, here is your crown uh, for having done so. So I would naturally suggest that Paul is speaking to Christians who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's their qualifier to even get in the race. Everybody can't show up in Greece and, sh- and be an Olympiad. You have to qualify to get into the race in the first place. So I would suggest that the qualifying is people who believe in Jesus as Lord. They have had salvation because it is salvation by grace through faith that it is warranted not through works lest any man should boast. We are not saved by our works. So we enter into the race. That's our salvation just by having faith. He is talking about now winning the crowns of what are waiting. So this epistle is to believers. These are people who have already entered the race, and he's talking to them about how to walk their Christian walk. And he ends chapter 9 with a, par- a parable or a-, a comparison between the athletes in the Olympics and the Christians and how they're living their lives. So how do you live your life? It's so you can obtain that crown. Paul, through other parts of Scripture, and then here as well, alludes to what the prize is. Now, I don't hear this taught often, but a contextual study of Scripture, I think, clearly tells us what the crown is. But we hear it's like, a, we actually think that it's a crown that we're going to put on our head and then we're going to cast it at Jesus' feet because we take revelation and apply it literally to ourselves and forget all the symbolism that's in there. I would suggest throw that out. Paul alludes to what the crown is, and I'm going to tell you in a minute but that the race to obtain the crown all through the New Testament is privations, deprivations, discipline. Bottom line, it is suffering. It is. Do athletes suffer to enter into the Olympic Games? they certainly do. Almost every one of them, if all of them to some extent. You have to go through deprivations and pain to get yourself to the place where you want to be physically to be able to compete in the the race. And so he is saying, listen, you know, he said in other places, we will be joint heirs with him if we suffer. Now, that suffering isn't physical. That suffering isn't self-flagellation. That suffering doesn't have to do with the things of this world. That suffering is spiritual. It's dying to yourself and letting the spirit reign. We run to receive the crown, but Paul adds another reason, which he does not allude to in the comparison with the athletes. He gives us another reason why he runs, in addition To receiving the crown. So the last two verses of the chapter tell us what that is. He says, I therefore, talking about himself, this is Paul, run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air. I'll explain that when we get to it. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Ready for this? Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. That's what he says. So in discussing the athletic games, he simply points out that the athletes prepare themselves to run so that they can win the prize. But relative to the Christian application of this uh, illustration, uh, he describes more important elements involved in our race. Verse 24, run that you may obtain the prize. Verse 25, which is an incorruptible crown. Verse 26, that he personally runs the Christian race, not uncertainly, That he fights is one that beats the air like boxers do when they're warming up. You know, they're 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 loosening up. That's not how I'm running the race. It's not with uncertainty. He is running the race with certainty. But verse 27, he says, "I keep my body and bring it unto subjection into subjection." Verse 28, lest by any means when I have preached others, I myself should be cast away." This is the reason I'm running the race too. It's not only to obtain a crown, it's so I won't be myself, even after preaching to people, cast away. So in these verses, Paul tells us that we are certainly to run our race as a means to obtain an incorruptible crown. And that we do not run it with uncertainty or like a boxer who's punching the air but has no uh, combatter. He, uh, we keep our body, he says, under subjection, unless somehow, as the King James calls it, he says, unless somehow I'll be cast away. Now, in all this, we learn the following, which is reiterated over and over again in the scripture, but goes undiscussed so many places in the faith today, especially in the face of Calvinism. First, as a means to reiterate, we're not discussing salvation. That comes by faith. If someone believes Jesus is Lord, they are saved by God's grace. Done. Period. Over. Bye-bye fathead, you're in heaven. People don't like that. They want that view that you have to run the race to get into heaven. That is not the case in scripture. That's why it's so glorious. That's why a thief on the cross can say, "Hey, remember me when you're you are in your kingdom," uh, uh, alluding to the fact that he believed Jesus had a kingdom. And then he's like, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's all it was, right? So we can't ever think it's salvation. Second, we are saying that a means to receive what Scripture calls this crown after this life, we run a good race. We walk the Christian walk, and we'll talk what that is. Third, by running a good race, one that is certain, he says, I run not with uncertainty. I'm not like, where's the track? I run with certainty, and, and we don't beat the air like a boxer warming up, you know. We're in the ring fighting our, our enemies, whatever those are. We keep ourselves from becoming a castaway. That's huge. The implications of these insights are far-reaching, and they're really important to understand faith lived. There's faith had And there's faith lived. They are two different things. They are what James talks about. A man says he has faith but has no love. I'll show you a man who has love who has faith. You don't just have the salvific experience. You also have the living experience. He is describing the living experience here. So much focus is placed on being saved. Today's Sunday, I would guarantee you that most of the messages at the churches around just this valley are talking about being saved. Come to Jesus. Be saved. Come to Jesus. Is there anyone here who doesn't know Jesus? Come forward. It's fine, it's an important part. I'm grateful that I have had that experience. Wonderful. Receiving God makes all things new. Allows you to have a relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit. Enlightenment comes to spiritual things. With this event comes a certain relationship with God that you have. You know you have it. People know they have it. I know I have a relationship with God. He is my, you know, he's my God. He's my Lord. He's my friend. He's my brother. He's my homie. Whatever people say these days. I have a relationship with him. They've had it. They experience it. They have new life, right? Uh, The knowledge that our sins have been forgiven. The knowledge that we will be redeemed to him after death. All part that the grave does not have any power over us anymore. All part of being saved, having Jesus in our life by faith through God's grace. It is no wonder new Christians are so full of zeal and rejoicing and they want to share with everybody, like maniacs, who Jesus is, right? But it's the good news that the children of Israel... When they came out of bondage and they ran for their lives and they got to the Red Sea and Moses parted the Red Sea and they escaped. And then he drowned Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea. The children of Israel were on the shore rejoicing, we've been saved. We have been saved. It's a wonderful experience. And then they turned from the Red Sea and they said, oh, shoot. What the fuck is this? That was what they said, too. Uh, They were facing life without garlic and leeks. They were facing enemies out there. They were facing times when they wouldn't have water. They were facing unbelievable challenges. Yay, look what Moses has done. He's led us away from bondage. He's let our enemies drown in the Red Sea. We're so happy. Holy camole, right? That's what Paul is talking about. You've been saved, Corinthians. Now let's talk about this. The running the race. Oh, not as easy. The saved is the alcoholic who becomes free from the alcoholism. It's new spiritual communion. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about that other side of the coin, the other side of the Red Sea, and which is walking with God and trusting God will take care of you while you're in the wilderness. While and when you're supposed to enter into the promised land, which is full of giants. I don't want to run that race. That is what Paul's talking about. He speaks to the children of Israel and the Pharaoh's armies, He's speaking about going without food. He's speaking of going without water, uh, physically for the children of Israel, spiritually for us. He's speaking of not knowing what the end result's going to be. We're going into this promised land that's full of giants. We have to trust you, God, that you're going to take care of us. That is terrifying. We don't necessarily want to. Rebirth is receiving the letter that says you're qualified to enter into the promised land. You're qualified to run in the Olympiad. You're qualified to have a relationship with God through grace. Paul is talking about the race itself. When it takes training and discipline and a a view of something further in faith, it requires sweat, pain, deprivations, hardship. We don't talk about it, very rarely. You get a room full of people, you start talking about this side of the faith, it clears and your numbers go because people want to hear about the party, when Jesus came into your life. Rebirth is great, but now the important part, now, not that rebirth isn't important, is the race. He's talking about the fact that some people are actually invited to the race to participate in the Olympics, to participate in the heavenly kingdom, but they say, I'm not gonna deprive myself and they sit on the couch of spiritual emptiness, and they pop the can of, of material indulgence, and they say, I was saved. I'm fine. I don't need to have no daring victory. He's had the victory. And they stop remembering that certainly over 85% of the New Testament speaks to this race. It does not speak to the salvific experience. In conclusion of this message, Paul, he suggests that those who take this approach to the regenerated life with God through Christ, if they ignore it, they run the risk of being cast away. But first, let's speak to the notion of crowns for believers, crowns for believers. Let's speak. There's two things we're going to talk about. We run the race to to not be cast away. We run the race for crowns. Let's talk about the crowns, okay? 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give us at that day, and not to us only, but to all them that love his appearing. So we know a crown is given. James says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. Remember, bless the man that endures temptation will receive the crown of life. That's the race. Uh, First Peter 5, 4 says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Crowns of corruption that kings wear fade. They go, they, they, they tarnish, and they break down over time. This is a crown he likens to something that never fades. Uh, Revelation 2.10, Jesus says to the first church, I think it's Ephesus, fear none of those things that you will suffer. Don't fear them. And they were going to suffer. Let me tell you something when you read Revelation. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you will be tried, and you shall have tribulation. Ten days, that's a spiritual time. Forget the literalism. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. It's all predicated now on the race. It's predicated on the run. Revelation 3.1, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast to which thou hast, that no one will take your crown. So, firstly, the crown is a crown of righteousness, as Second Timothy 4.8 says, bestowed on us. And I would suggest that the crown is, because of other scripture I'm not going into today, the crown is not something we're going to wear in our heads spiritually or even physically as regenerated whatever's in heaven. It is the resurrected body God is going to give you. It will not fade away. It will possess glory that is commensurate with the place you're in in the kingdom. And that is what you're given by God. That is your crown. The the resurrected body, which Paul says God gives to us by his will. He chooses. In his house are many mansions. I would say in his house are many types of resurrected bodies. I think the highest ones are all going to look like me. (laughs) Just seeing if you're listening. (laughs) Okay, they'll look like Ken. No, actually, they'll look like Richard. (laughs) They're very (laughs) and nice. (laughs) So, but I would suggest that they are the resurrected body. So, uh, because of a bunch of other passages, we could spend the time teaching, but just know there there is a reward, and it's called a crown that will not fade away. Now, I know a lot of Christians can dispute that, and they will say, and I would go through scripture to try to say this is what I think, but it doesn't matter. There will be a reward. Secondly, in the language of these passages given to the saints in that day, as a means to encourage them to hang on, to hang on to dear life and to run the race, we see the term crown and the reception of it typically tied to suffering, to enduring to, uh, which is very much part of athletic competitions, hence the parallel. Remember what James said, third time I've said it. Blessed is the man that endures temptation for when she is tried, she shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised. Do you trust his promises? I trust his promises. It's called faith. I walk by faith. Do I know I'll get him? No. But the Lord has promised it. I trust he'll give it. The Lord has promised to those that love him. Remember, The righteousness, the suffering we do, is not the self-flagellation. The righteousness is when we love God and neighbor as ourselves. When we love God first and foremost, and we learn to love neighbor as we automatically love our own wants and needs and desires. It's an intriguing question I get all the time in counseling with people or talking, having discussions. It's stumped me for quite a while, and which is, why this mortal life? Why? Uh, I sat on the stage with John Delenn of Mormon Stories, and he said, I think God could have done a better job. I mean, why this way? I've had this conversation several dozens of times with several dozens of people why the suffering and difficulty, why the disease and pain, why get old and have things become so difficult? What is the purpose of mortality? Couldn't God have done this a better way? In the end, it seems to me that God, in creating us in his image, remember, we're in his image, the only creations in this earth that is made in his image, he wants us to choose to be like him, to choose. He doesn't force us. He wants creations made in his image to choose to be like him. With him being light, with him being love, with him being good and the like, he's saying, I give you life. And in this life, you're choosing me and others over yourself is huge. You're actually evidencing something that I am. Selfless love. I am that. It's so selfless I don't wipe you all out. Because I, so we can experience that unless we were in this realm. If we were all just spirit beings, we would be in that realm and we would love him for other reasons. And we would love each other for other obvious reasons. And we'd be in the heavenly realm for all kinds of reasons. But when we're separated by flesh, and we're walking among ourselves as spirits housed in these temples of flesh, we are choosing. The moment we're born, we are choosing to, we're, we're being confronted with opportunities to love or not. Every second of every day, we are facing invitations to love or not. I mean, growing up, there, our mom and dad, when we're little children, their ways, and the, the neighbors and their ways, our siblings and their ways. We go to school and we're introduced to 500 other kids and their ways and their opinions and all of that stuff. And we're in this realm and we get to choose. Are we going to love others or are we going to hate them, kill them, hurt them, besmirch them, do all the things that we want to do sometimes? To learn to love others, which is Endless opportunities, even here, when people on campus annoy us and do things, we are forced to choose. Will I love or will I not? That is why we're in the mortal life. But it's not just for each other. I'm not so sure a being created in his image would have the opportunity to actually love others if we weren't in this world, which is why I think we have mortality, to learn to love. So, I think we also learn in this mortality to obey the first and great commandment, which is to love God with all of our heart and our mind and everything we've got to love him, the first great commandment. We're surrounded by opportunities to not do that. And so down here, we have the, the, the choice, love him or not. So we have injustices heaped upon us. Someone hits us in our car, T-bones us, drives off, escapes, gets pulled over. The cops let them go. You're damaged with the car and uh, you have to say, why would you do this, you jerk? Or you say, I'm going to trust you anyway. It's a constant opportunity when we're suffering with disease, when we can't pay our bills. When things don't seem to line up for us, it's a constant opportunity to say, I'm going to love you in spite of my circumstances. I don't think those circumstances could be there if we were in the spirit and didn't have mortal flesh. So we have this, and he is saying, I want all to be in relationship with me who will choose, not be forced, who will choose to love me, who will choose of their own free will to turn the other cheek to that jerk who you really want to hurt, Who will choose love? Because when we choose love, we are choosing to be like him. Okay? So I don't think there's a better situation, all things considered. God's special creations made in his image. Learn to love as he is love by being part of this fallen, difficult place. And that's exactly what is before all of us in mortality, to choose to love or not. The book of Revelation, written to the churches, seven churches in Asia Minor in that day, encourage, uh, uh, give encouragement and sustenance to trying times. And as I've read it, Jesus says to Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Thou shalt suffer. Do not fear them. Behold, the devil will cast some of you into prison. What? Yes that you will be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. That is faith. That is saying I love God more than my circumstances. That is saying I will put my will and trust in him. That's radical. Even unto death you will be tried. Hundred thousand plus Christians put to death at this time under Nero's hand. We can read the history from uh, Josephus and Dio Cassius, Suetonius, Hundreds of thousands of Christians, at least a hundred thousand Christians, put to death under their hand, tortured. These letters are telling them, "Hang in there, even unto death. You will receive a crown of life." So to the Christians there uh, in Corinth, Paul is saying, "Now's the run. Now is the run. And you've been saved." In my estimation, the challenges of Adam and Eve for the nation of Israel for the early saints, for Jesus himself, for every single Christian today are essentially all the same. We want to escape suffering. And in so doing, we naturally want to focus on us, me, me, and not on God and others. Hence, where the athletes are pretty self-absorbed when we think about it, in his analogy of athletes they're pretty self-absorbed. I mean, I need to train, and I have to run, and this is my diet, and I need to do this, and I can't do anything for anyone else. I to get prepared for this race, and I win the crown, and I wear the wreath, and I get taken through the chariot. It's me, me, me when it comes to that kind of thing, but he is talking about something else. It's them, 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 them. It's not me, right? So this concept is such an important principle because it wholly supports the New Testament teaching that says, Rebirth and liberation are wonderful, but those who have been truly liberated will run the race set before them, which is a race to love God and a race to love man. But as stated, the winning of crowns is not the only reason we run this Christian race. We run to stay on course. That's why we're doing it too. Or as Paul says, so as to not be cast off. Um, The Greek is adalkimos, and it means to be rejected. Okay? So you get into the race, and you're out of shape, and you can't do it, and everything else. And the people over the Olympic Committee say, you're disqualified. You're going to embarrass the whole thing. Get out of here. You're rejected because you haven't prepared. Theologically, from this principle, remember Paul says, I run to stay on course. Theologically, don't lose this. There's a notion floating around that says, once saved, always saved. It's bull mushrooms. I can't emphasize it enough. It's one of the most pernicious, man-made theologies on earth. It is a lie. Because the scripture constantly is talking about being cast off and being worried about it enough. You're cognizant of it. The little statement proves that this is a farce to think once invited in, you can never lose that track of yourself. Understand, it's not that you are cast off from the race because you fail and because you've sinned and God takes you out. It's because you say, I don't believe anymore. That's why. I don't believe. Your faith, gone is gone once and for all, and you're cast off. So what Paul is really saying is, I run the race so that my faith will be sustained, so I won't be cast off. I'm going to prove that through Scripture as we wrap this up. We have Paul himself tell us here that he acts, he races with proper restraints upon himself, lest he is rejected, cast off. So where there is great liberty in the faith, which Paul has talked about, we have the liberty to do as we want So much so that Paul wrote, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he that condemns not himself in the thing that he allows. That's liberty. You have total liberty, right? So we can't forget that, what Paul says. But we also know that the Apostle John wrote, whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So it's, we are saved by grace through faith, we run the race by faith, and as we're running, if we stop and get sidetracked and quit the race and give up, and sit on the proverbial spiritual couch of emptiness, we run the risk of losing faith. And when you lose faith, you will get lost. You will walk. You can be rejected that's a biblical tenet through and through, ignored by once saved, always saved. Ignored by people who want to preach that come and to stand up here and say, I love Jesus, and you're good. That is not the case, because he's going to go on and show us that there are things in our lives that can harden us toward or against faith. And that's why we run. That's what he's saying. So, Therefore, loss of faith is to be overcome by the world. We overcome the world by faith. Loss of faith is to be overcome by the world. So we run the race to inoculate ourselves against such. The writer of Hebrews, if you want to read this, it's a little bit, uh, well, I'm not there yet. But the writer of Hebrews gives us some really good instruction. I want you to really clearly hear this as we get closer. Hebrews 3.13, he says, exhort one another daily. Now, this was under a different time. But exhort one another, de- while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay? So putting it all together, we are free. You're at liberty to be happy in whatever way you want. There is no sin. Christ has taken care of the sin. Now, I know that's radical for some of you, but that's what happened. But we walk in the Spirit now. And it is our faith that allows us to overcome this world and to continue that race. When the writer of Hebrews suggests that the believers should exhort each other daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, we can see two things. One, that faith comes by hearing the word. That's why he says exhort each other daily while it's called today. So we read the word, we hear the word, we listen to the word, and it increases our faith. That's why he says exhort one another daily, uh, which the writer is commending, and that sin has the capacity to harden us. Sin has the capacity to harden us. I have sat, I can't tell you how many people, and if they really want to start talking about their sin, and they want to talk about God hating them and them being, it's, I, forget that. Well, I did this. I don't care. So what? You know, I don't care about that. God doesn't care about it. He took care of that. Well, then what's the, what's the problem? The problem is, is that as you continue in that, you run the risk of getting hard in your heart toward God and loving the things of this world. And then your faith runs the risk of failing and you being cast off. That's the danger. There is no, you wretched sinner, you're going to hell for that. That's impossible in the good news of the gospel. But what is possible is, is for you to believe, like the parable of the sower, you're cast on different grounds for you to believe and start to grow, but you start to wither because you don't have enough root, or because you haven't, because of the rocks, or because of the thorns, and all those other things that hinder faith alone is all we're talking about here, right? I hope that's clear. So in the face of this, Paul says, he keeps his body which is in opposition to a fighter beating the air, he keeps his body close and under subjection, he says. And he says uh, he beats it out. He says he's received the marks of Christ in his own body. He says, into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I've done my job as a call, I myself should be cast away. So I keep myself in that race. Which takes full circle, as Paul clearly understands what Scripture calls the deceitfulness of sin. And that is what has the capacity to cause us to fail in our walk, to stumble, to get caught up, and to quit the progress of the Christian walk. I'm just going to, this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to just be very transparent here. If I sin, I never allow the, the dark voice of sin to say, oh, you're screwed. You're screwed. You're gone. You're not his. You're a loser. I never allow that dark voice to come out of me to somebody who has sinned. Because that's not the case. He doesn't leave us because of our sin. And the reason is, he didn't accept us because of our lack of sin. He accepted us because of our faith. Right? So he doesn't get rid of us because of our sin. But he will allow us to walk if the faith wanes. And the things of this world will get us so subtly to lose our grip on him in faith and to stop trusting him and to start trusting ourselves. So it's not the sin it's been taken care of. It's that the deceitfulness of sin works directly. This is the deceitfulness of sin like a a claw. And this is the rock of faith. And the deceitfulness of sin works directly on the rock of faith and slowly breaks it down. Every time the deceitfulness of sin, it breaks the faith down, and there lies the danger of living for the flesh. Okay, if you turn to Hebrews 3, it's about 12 passages, and I'm going to read it, and just, if you don't want to read along, that's fine. It's Hebrews 3, 5, and let me read it to you. It's a little heavy in parts, but he says, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant to the children of Israel. We've talked about him. For a testimony of those things which are to be spoken after. Moses did things, but it was a testimony of what was going to happen in the New Testament. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, ready? Whose house are we if, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. The writer of Hebrews would not say that if once saved, always saved was in place. He says, if you hold fast to the confidence, that's faith and rejoicing of hope, firm to the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost says, today we will hear his voice. He says in verse 8, harden not your hearts. That's where the problem uh, lies, you guys. It's in the hearts. And he goes in and he talks about how in verses 8 through uh, 11, that the children of Israel, once they turned from what God did for them and saw what was ahead, they began to harden their hearts. They murmured, they whined, they said, Moses, we're tired of this, of this quail. That's all you give us. We're tired of this manna. Where are we going to get another drink of water? Oh, we wish, we wish we were in bondage again if we could just have our leeks and our garlic. And so their hearts became hardened through unbelief. So he talks about that through verses 8 through 11. Then he says, take heed, brethren. Now, now the writer of Hebrews talks to the current day. Lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief. That is where the evil lies in, in, in our lives. It's unbelief, the evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, me showing that you can be his and depart from him. He doesn't throw you away, you throw yourself away. Which is why we want to talk with people who are trapped in practices that will hinder their faith. That's the reason. But exhort one another daily, this is the passage, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we were made partakers of Christ if we were made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Verse 15 he says, harden not your hearts as they did in the day of Moses, provocation. And then we drop down to verse 18 and 19. To whom swear he that he should not enter his rest, but them that believe not? He's talking about the children of Israel. Who did he say that were not going to enter into the promised land? Those who believe not. It's all about the belief. And then the last verse, 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The enemy to belief, which creates unbelief, is hardness of heart, which is created through sin. And that is the whole picture of the Christian walk. So Paul says, the reason I run the race is one, I want to receive an incorruptible crown, a resurrected body of glory that God will give me according to the race I've run. But the second reason is, is I don't want to be cast off, right? So we who are seeking gather ourselves to be in check. We see each other socially, and we talk and exhort with each other to encourage each other knowing the value of reinforced faith in the running of a good Christian life. Because of the principles at play here, I would strongly suggest that if God and Jesus and his apostles relentlessly speak of the fact that all people do, in fact, reap what they sow, that's an eternal principle. We will reap what we sow. And that even though we most definitely have been saved by God's grace through faith, our faith is sustained And supported and strengthened by a walk that is subjected to his will and ways which are insufferable. They're insufferable. But they are not impossible by any means. Because we've been saved by grace, our worthiness before him is not predicated on our failures or our successes. It's just, do we continue to hold fast and move forward toward him? My flesh on any given day will fail. It does fail, not will, does. I am instant like this in certain things. Certain things cross my path of vision, forget it. It's carnal, man. And so it's not the fact that I'm going to fail. It's the fact that I look to him beyond those failures and he brings me to a place that says, okay, keep, keep it in the faith, keep it in the spirit, keep it in the walk. These facts are manifestly, present in the New Testament. And there are really many mansions, and and the enemy is always, always, always unbelief. The enemy is unbelief. Faithlessness. And that's what the world pushes now. It's everywhere. I, I mean, I'd hate to raise a kid today, because everything is focused on, don't believe the myths, the Santa Claus story, the Jesus story, the Bible. Everything is against faith. And so, uh, what that does, in my estimation, is it leads to the deceitfulness of sin, which blocks out faith all the more. So, we wrapped up chapter 9, chapter 10, 1 Corinthians next week, and we will go from there. Questions, comments, please? Vanna? Hi. Who?
1: Thank you.
0: You gonna say something? No. Anybody? Oh. Wow.
2: Yeah, I uh, first of all thank you for the message. Thank you. It's uh, who are you? Oh I'm Richard. Yeah. Uh, the Svelte one he referred to.
0: <laughs> svelte.
2: Still working on that. I couldn't by always the
0: way. say that by the way. <laughs>
2: No, something that really jumped out at me—it's more of a comment than a question—when you're talking about, you know, the recurring question of why is there suffering, and um, I've been contemplating a lot on that. But what really came through to me, and and you said it, um, not in the words, probably I'll say it back to you, but yeah, we'd never, we would—it's become very clear to me that without suffering. The suffering that comes in life—if we didn't have this mortal experience—we would never learn to love others. Yeah. We'd never learn empathy. We'd never learn faith. We'd never learn humility. Um, and uh, I just think this is a real key, and the subject today of suffering—I think—is a key subject to contemplate and to study, yeah. and how the suffering either leads you to faithfulness or to faithlessness, and faith—faithlessness leads you to sin because you lose faith that. That the good news, the gospel, that Christ, that your faith is going to help you through the hard realities of life. And so you turn to sin for relief from suffering, which just leads to more suffering, which leads to more sin. And uh, I just think there's so much wisdom in the message today. And I I thank you for sharing it.
0: Thanks, my brother. Great, great insights. And over to...
3: Yeah, this is Ken.
0: Um,
3: The magic word God taught me somewhere along the line is gratitude. When I find myself in those moments of less, uh, and I feel like it's suffering, I turn it into gratitude. Because I've tried some things that didn't work in both personal and business, and they didn't work. And I look around going, why? And then I find out that would have been a bad idea. <laughs> that would have been. So in, in the foresight of suffering, I exercise gratitude. Mm-hmm. And that uh, opens the door to more faith for me. Mm-hmm. So I go through. I was, uh, <clears throat> was watching my little granddaughter being uh, brand new a couple years ago being completely taken care of. And I thought to myself, how great would that be? Somebody takes care of your every need mm. and they feed you, they cha- they clothe you, They and I looked up and went, hey, that's God. Mm. I am as a little child. Mm. He takes care of every need and the things I don't get really didn't need. Mm. And Beautiful. that's my magic
0: word is gratitude. Praise him in the storm. Yes. Love it, Ken, thank you.
4: This is Danny. When you were talking about um, people being saved and then feeling comfortable and feeling like their salvation has been assured enough that they can just do what they want or become lazy, I wonder if the, um, the approach that the church has taken generally in Christianity that uh, Christ is coming back to get them uh, gives people a, a sense of, well, I don't have to do much. I, I believe I've accepted him one day and I'll be ready to go when he comes back. Hmm. Um, you think that has any plays into it at all?
0: If it does, I think we could say, well, let's say that you're you're right. Let's look at what the New Testament apostles were saying to the believers then. Because they obviously were under the impression, and they were wrong, that he was coming back, right? So let's say that's the. What were they telling them? And they were telling them, suffer, endure suffering, run the race, get yourself ready, and and so if that is leading to them thinking that, it's really a, it's really a mistake of how they understand the New Testament.
4: Also, I was wondering if Paul, since he had actually been visited by the uh, the Lord, and he saw that resurrected body and then i think it was paul that was caught up into the third heaven and had a vision and was able to see the resurrection in that third heaven Mm. he probably saw that what the bodies will look like Mm. for those who obtain the crown Mm. uh you you were talking about these different resurrected bodies if that wasn't what he was trying to get across because
0: you don't even know what's in store for you yeah yeah great points that's great insights you guys anything else Sorry. Just
2: running right all over the place. Hi, Richard. Again, sorry to monopolize the time, but uh, two other thoughts that that your um, words inspired in that I think are really uh, important was the this you know when you choose the world instead of Christ or instead of God, however you want to look at it. This this life you know that this life of success, the fame you know, popularity, wealth, the things that we value, it's a fantasy, you know, it's not even real. And so while we're, and I've lived in that for a period, and it, it is, it's living in a fantasy because the real world isn't that, you know, and the, and what we're trying to, to be and to have isn't found there. And so in some ways, it's a great blessing to be uh, ejected from that, lifestyle because it's it is a fantasy and it's not real and so we should be grateful um... for the inevitable ejection from that because nobody stays in that world forever mm-hmm. and uh, you don't want to you don't want to you know that's a that's like going to disneyland it's fun but it's not yeah. the place you want to live you know it's not real and then the other thing is just that re- you know that when we choose the world w- you know, instead of God, we have to understand that the world is gonna screw us. I mean, I, fast and hard, and sorry to use that kind of language, but I've experienced it, and it's not, you know, that is not where you wanna place your faith, but it's so hard, sometimes it's so hard to to, uh, to believe in what we can't see, you know, and when, when all around us, you know, we've got the world saying, look, here's relief from the suffering, and it's not. It's temporary relief, and it's and it's going to cause more suffering. So, uh, anyway, wonderful words. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Richard.
0: Really, really great. Loved your insights. Oh, and uh, like Scripture says, the Lord chastens those He loves. So that that rejection, if you're getting it, you know, that's that's something that God's working in your life. He wants your soul. He want. I love that. Great, great point. All right, let's pray. We uh, Oh, uh, quick, really quick, don't usually do this, but I'm interviewing a Catholic priest. He's the father of the Cathedral of the Madeline, which is downtown, a beautiful church, this Tuesday night for a couple hour, two or three hour special. And then following week, we've done some pre-interviews uh, of a, a really, a really an amazing, horrible, but winds up to be just something else story of an LDS woman who I knew growing up in Southern California. As a kid, her dad was a CES leader, very esteemed. The whole story, knew the family, the whole thing. And we got to interview her, uh, Seth and Wendy and I, uh, the other day for three hours. And as that story unfolds, it is really, really effective, especially uh, what she realizes in it. So uh, check that out on Heart of the Matter. I don't usually plug the, the show, but check it out this next week, this Tuesday, and then the following three. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the insights that were shared and, uh, by your Spirit, because your Spirit is truth, speaks through all of us. And when truth is spoken, we listen. And we pray that we'll uh, learn uh, the whys and then how to apply and, and, and what to learn from all this, because that's what you're doing. You're, you're showing us and you're grooming us and teaching us uh, how to be like you if we want to be. And if we want to have that love that you are, so we can dwell with you in a place of love, a realm of love, both here and there. And so we just pray you'll continue to prepare us to walk in your light and not walk by the flesh, which, you know, as Richard pointed out, is so failing and fleeting and disappointing. In fact, this world turns on us. It turns on us the more we, uh, we are of you. And uh, so help us, like you write to your uh, believers in Revelation, to hang on and and endure and move forward through the trials and tribulations and to suffer things in your name that's what you did when you walk the earth that's what we do here in your name and we just pray we'll exit here now we'll be free from the strictures of religion that we'll be happy in the choices that we make for ourselves knowing our relationship is directly between you and ourselves and that we will also learn to run the race and to avoid being cast away that can happen if we're uh, flippant with the faith you've given us. We love you and praise you. We pray for Kathy Jean Johnson, who uh, uh, is out on the street on the meth trail and suffering immeasurably because of things that have uh, happened to her. And we pray you'll watch over and bless her and say this in Jesus' name, amen.